Now we are coming to the conclusion of the season of Lent and our preparations in our hearts and souls for Easter. Believe it or not, next Sunday is Palm Sunday. And then comes Holy Week with its reflections and its special services. Easter is just two weeks from today. And in this season of Lent, we have been encouraging you to understand Lent not as a season of restriction and limitations, but to understand Lent as a season of enough. And this morning, we are looking at the idea that the question of enough to go around. And we will look at it uh, through the parable of the vineyard workers. This is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. And it reads like this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day, and he sent them to his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon, about three in the afternoon, and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Well, because no one has hired us, they answered. So he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You know, this is one of those parables that we are all familiar with, but which we don't want to connect or with or focus on. The pastor, Barbara Brown Taylor, says that it's a little like cod liver oil. You know Jesus is right. You know it must be good for you, but that does not make it any easier to swallow. Well, that's true for a lot of Jesus' parables. You see, Jesus used parables to express something about the kingdom of God, to teach us about God and God's ways in the world. And most of his parables were stories set in the context of mundane and ordinary realities. And very often these stories did not end as the hearers expected them to do. 
They usually had a good twist to them that the audience did not see coming. Parables or stories where Jesus would start with a plot that his hearers thought was predictable and obvious, one where they knew where the story was going, who the heroes were, and how it would end. But then the parable would often take a surprising turn, a turn that was intended to awaken the hearer to a different reality, a way of seeing the world and living in it, not as society sees, but as God sees God's creation. Now, most of these twists would have been made those who were listening to it a bit uncomfortable, or at least off-settled. And so think about some of the parables that you know. The twist of the Good Samaritan is that the hero of the story is not the expected religious leader, but a despised ethnic minority. The parable of the lost coin or the lost sheep shocks us with the celebration for the return of just one when there are so many others. And our parable this morning has a twist too. It begins with a landowner who is needing workers to harvest in his vineyard. And he hires workers early in the morning, let's say 6 a.m. And then in quick succession, he goes out and he hires others who have been standing around and waiting for work at 9 a.m., at noon, at 3 p.m. And then at the very end of the workday at 5 p.m., he goes out one last time to hire another group of workers. And by this point in the day, the only group around is those whom nobody else will hire to work. These workers will will, will only work one hour before the end of the day arrives and then payment is to be made. And now that all the workers have been hired, Jesus continues the story with the last hour workers being paid first and the first hour workers being paid last. Now, this is a narrative device that prepares for the story's twist and its conflict. The individuals who worked for 12 hours are aware of the landowner's generosity in giving the same full day's wage that they have been promised to those who have worked for only one hour. Even though they are being given what has been promised to them, because they see the generosity of the landowner to the one-hour workers, they are expecting to be paid more than they are promised. And that, when that doesn't happen, the day-long workers are surprised and disappointed, and they grumble. How could the landowner compare and equate the work those others did to the work that they did? It's not fair. They do not see the other workers as being equal to them, and the landowner chastises them for complaining. After all, they received what they had been promised. Who are they to comment and judge on his generosity? And it's here that most of us likely experience the discomfort of the plot twist. Doesn't it seem supremely unfair to pay the same wage for the work of 12 hours as for one? It isn't fair or right, and it's difficult to understand this kind of generosity. And if we were in the situation, we'd likely feel slighted like the day-long laborers. You know, it's like the parable of the prodigal son This parable is one of those stories of grace so radical that it offends 
because it seems to reward those who have done the least while sending those who have worked the hardest to the end of the line. You know, one thing that often helps me understand difficult parables like this one is to see where they fit. At what point in his life is Jesus telling his story? Where is he? What is he doing? Who is he talking to? What has happened and what will happen next? You see, in the paragraph just before this parable, Peter has asked Jesus what he and the other disciples can expect in the way of a reward for their loyalty to Jesus. Peter even mentions that they have given up everything to follow Jesus. And he wants to know what Jesus will give them in return. And Jesus promises that they will have rewards in the world to come, but he reminds them that the first will be last and the last will be first. And then shortly after this parable, James and John's mother comes to Jesus and she asks for her sons to get the best seats in God's kingdom on Jesus' left and right side. You see, the context is important here. It helps to know that this parable is sandwiched between stories of entitlement and calls for fairness. It's part of why this parable is difficult to hear. We are more like Peter and James and John that we care to admit. And it's not that we want more than others. We want what we deserve. We want what is fair. This parable about God's kingdom and generosity, it makes us feel uncomfortable because we regulate generosity to equality, to accountability to measurability, to what is fair. It's human nature to experience generosity as a quid pro quo situation, to assume that we did something to deserve this generosity. And when we assume that, we end up cheapening generosity to mere gratitude, especially when we're talking about God's generosity. When we experience generosity as an exchange or an appreciation, we tarnish the abundance of God's generosity. We take that which is limitless and incalculable and make it limited and measurable. This parable is a reminder of the absolute gift of God's generosity, that it does not demand a response, it does not uh, anticipate or account for reciprocity, that it doesn't calculate with a measurable metric, because if it did, then generosity would not be generous, because God's generosity is immeasurable, incomprehensible, and incalculable. And therein lies the point of this parable. Remember, this is a parable about the kingdom of God. When it comes to the kingdom of God, there is more than enough. More than enough grace and love and forgiveness and generosity to go around. And as we continue, I want to look just a little closer at the characters in this parable, these day workers. Because this parable is not just about generosity, it's also about inclusion. You see, the landowner begins the day early, hiring workers for what is a fair wage for a day of hard labor in the field. 
And as the day moves on, he returns several times to hire more workers. There would have been a distinct difference between those hired earlier in the day and those hired later. The strongest, the smartest, the most skilled would have been hired first. If not by the landowner in our story, then by someone else. And so each time that he returns, the pool of workers is filled with less employable choices. By five o'clock, with only an hour left in the workday, the only workers left to hire be those who could not find work anywhere else. Those deemed unworthy by most hiring standards. Perhaps that means that they were physically weaker than the others. In the context of Jesus' time when he was telling the story, that meant they may have been females or foreigners, elderly widows. Maybe where they were the ones who had earned a bad reputation in the community. They were the outcasts. They were the ones the Pharisees had labeled as unworthy. They were the ones that society would tell us to ignore, to discard, and yet the landowner hires them. He not only hires them, but he gives them the same wage as the other workers. And so those hired at the start of the day are not just mad, they're offended. Their outrage was not really about the unfair wages. What they complain about to the landowner is not that they've been cheated out of their fair wage, but instead they complain to the landowner, you have made them equal to us. It's not actually the extravagant wage that makes the first hired workers angry. By dealing generously and lovingly with a group of people that no other owner in town would consider worth the trouble of hiring, the landowner has made a clear declaration about their value and their worth. The landowner's radical generosity contradicts with the first hired sense of privilege and superiority. You know, the radically submersive and often overlooked purpose of this parable is to make us realize how deep our sense of entitlement exists, how our sense of privilege is active in how we envision what the kingdom of God looks like. Remember, this parable is sandwiched between stories of disciples asking for their reward for their faithfulness. And just like them, we want the kingdom of God to be filled with people who look like us, who think like us, who behave like us. We, too, want to be rewarded for our faithfulness, which also begs the question, why in some parables are we able to see the least of these, like the parables of the sheep and the goats, versus seeing the least of these here? You know, the sheep serve people who are hungry and thirsty and naked and sick and imprisoned, but their worth is not less than or diminished. And yet here we are uncomfortable because the least in the one-hour workers are made to be equal with the day-long workers. The parable of the workers in the vineyard does exactly what Jesus' parables are meant to do. It makes us uncomfortable because the people we identify with are not the good guys. 
Now, we all know people who, in our not-so-humble opinion, neither earned nor deserved what they got, be it a job, a promotion, a raise, recognition, happiness, success, that we have worked longer and tried harder seem to make no difference. And more often than not, we view the world and ourselves and others through the lens of fairness rather than grace. But that's the exact opposite of how God views the world, of how God sees our lives. This is what we call a wage-based economy, where our worldview is based on what the theologian Diana Butler-Bass says is scarcity, control, hierarchy, and power. It's about a form of fairness based on entitlement and transactions and quid pro quo. She continues to explain that God's economy is one of abundance, openness, and freedom based in gifts, generosity, and gratitude. When we come face to face with God's generosity, with an alternative vision of worth and generosity, it is a bit terrifying. You see, we Christians love grace and mercy as long as it's directed towards us towards the people we approve of, that we think are deserving, as long as it's not so lavish as to be embarrassing to us. We want things to be equal and fair, but not if it causes us to be uncomfortable or to have to change or to make space for those who are different from us. We're like those first hired workers. We want fairness rather than love or acceptance, mercy, forgiveness, or generosity to be the measure by which which we act and judge another person or life circumstances. We like fairness because it gives us an assurance of predictability and control. Fairness is based on what we deserve and what we achieved through our own hard work and actions. It is the consequences of our behavior and our attitude. When our worldview is wage-based, then we are rewarded and punished punished based on what we can control. A wage-based worldview says that what you get is what you earned. You deserve the consequences as good or bad, of your actions. But what then happens when divine generosity exceeds human fairness? Well, that's when you get today's parable. That's when you get the kingdom of God. Today's parable suggests that wages and God's generosity stand in opposition to each other. They are two opposing worldviews. The degree to which this parable strikes us as shocking and unfair is the degree to which our life and our worldview is wage-based. A wage-based worldview allows little room for grace in our own lives or in the lives of others. You know, one of my favorite protest slogans is equal rights for others does not mean fewer rights for you. It's not pie. It's a great phrase. It's a powerful way of looking at the world, and it can be applied to our understanding of God's love. God's love and grace and generosity for those who are different from us does not mean that God loves us less. God's love is not pie. There's enough to go around. 
You know, maybe we need to add an eighth thing to the seven things we know to be true. God's love is not pie. There's enough to go around. God's grace is abundant and radical and beyond us. And then this makes grace dangerous and disruptive to the world. Grace is all about reversing the status quo. Jesus ends this parable by saying, so the last will be first and the first will be last. That's the difference between a wage-based society and the kingdom of God. The world says that the last are last and the first are first because that's what they deserve and that is what is fair. But this understanding of fairness does not have a place in the kingdom of God where God's generous grace is the rule, not the exception. Grace looks beyond our effectiveness, our appearance, our accomplishments, and our failures. The abundant generosity of God's grace sees that there's more to you and who you are than what the world sees. The tragedy of a wage-based life, of a life focused on fairness as the world describes this, is that it blinds us to the presence of grace, to the generosity of God in our own life. And it also makes us forget that when it comes to God's grace, there is always going to be enough. It makes us resentful of the generosity, of the goodness, of the beauty in the life of another. It separates and isolates us from others. Eventually, we create standards and expectations, not just for ourselves and others, but also for God. And those expectations force us to live in a world where we are envious of what others receive and focused on what we feel entitled to have instead of living into the radically inclusive generosity that is foundational to the kingdom of God. So what happens when we work to become the kingdom of God where there is enough of God's love and grace to go around? Well, when we acknowledge the abundance of God's generosity, we create room for grace to emerge. It allows us to acknowledge but not give power to our envious thoughts and worldview. It helps us to stop comparing ourselves to others comparing our lives to others. When we stop measuring our worthiness to others, we can live into the fact that there is enough of God's grace and generosity to go around. In the kingdom of God, we can work towards a world that becomes a place where we don't compete with each other. When we acknowledge that there's enough of God's grace to go around, then we no longer have to find someone to lose just so we can win. We don't have to have the best seats in the kingdom. We don't have to remind Jesus of all that we gave up for him. We can live into and trust that in God's world there is enough for everyone. When we let go of our entitlements and our wage-based sense of fairness, we can begin to acknowledge that God freely and generously gifts the world, the whole world, without exception. And we are all recipients of God's generous gift. The kingdom of God calls us to let go of expectations based on what we think we or others deserve. It calls us to let go of comparison and competition, of expectation and of judgment. 
If you did this, your life would be God-filled. You would make space for the life of another to be God-filled. And the world, the parable tells us, would look a lot like the kingdom of heaven. So church, we raise our eyes to see the world as God sees it. And we strive to act in a way that builds the kingdom of God. We have enough. We are enough because God's grace and love is not pie. God is more than enough. And God's love and God's grace never runs out. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in a moment of prayer?